Well, let's take out our Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 12. John chapter 15, verse 12. This morning we're continuing in our series, The Upper Room. And it appears that from two weeks ago that we had left the upper room as Jesus had been talking about vineyards and abiding in him that we need as the saints to abide, to abide, to abide. And he continues to say the same word throughout, to abide in him, the vine. And to, today we come to a text that addresses both love and hate. Love and hate. With our Bibles open, let's read God's word. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin now. However, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Then the counselor comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me, and when, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the very beginning. This is God's word. Let's pray. O oh, Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word before us, a serious and searching word. And, oh, we ask that your spirit would minister to, to us and apply your word to your church right here in the 21st century. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the church today, what generation are we living in? What generation are we living in? 
Are we living in an age of robust Christianity where the Word of God is taken seriously and applied to one's everyday life? Do we actually seek to differentiate ourselves from the culture around us, or are we a conforming Christianity? Or are we just a comfort Christianity? Wherever Christ makes much of me, I'm all in. Making much of me? Fantastic. Thank you, Jesus. Is, is that what a lot of the church is today? A kind of therapeutic deism. A God that's there to serve you, to minister to you, and to give you your best life now. I mean, this is the rhetoric actually coming from the pulpits of this nation. A comfort Christianity. But is a comfort Christianity a Christless Christianity? Because you don't find Jesus teaching like this at all. He does not teach as if you should have your best life now. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Now, I do believe if you follow Christ, you will have your best life now, oh yes, and forevermore. But it's not the life according to the culture around you that dictates what the good life is. The good life is just more stuff, right? more accomplishments, more degrees, better vacations that I can share with everybody on Facebook or whatever other social media that I'm using so everybody can see how wonderful my family is. But see, Christianity, the Christianity of Christ is a very different Christianity. It's a Christianity that calls for suffering, not for comfort. The entire life of, and ministry of Jesus is not one of comfort but of opposition. And so when Jesus addresses his men here, we don't know exactly where they were. What part of Jerusalem were they walking in? Were they getting close to the Kidron River? How close were they to the Garden of Gethsemane? We are uncertain, but he's walking with them, and he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And he had already said that, didn't he? He had already talked about them, about this command in chapter 13 to love each other as I have loved you. Jesus was always speaking like this. But what kind of love was he speaking about? Well, we know, in fact, in this context, he says of these merry men, and who are they absent of? Who is not here walking with Jesus? It is Judas, right? Judas, the betrayer, is not here with Jesus and the other disciples. And Jesus says to them about, well, this idea of friendship. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And then he says right away, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now Jesus is calling them friends. Now again, who is Jesus? Who has John proclaimed Jesus to be? None other than the creator of the universe. God Almighty. And he says of them, you're my friends. Now that's quite comforting, isn't it? My friends. Who in the Old Testament had been called God's friend? 
It's very small company. In fact, in all those books, those 39 books, we only have two men that are called friends of God. We see in Isaiah 41.8, where the prophet clearly says, whom, it says this, But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. It is very clear of the Lord, as he's prophesying through Isaiah, that Abraham was, well, God's friend. He's my friend. And of course, there is Moses. Moses on the mountain in Exodus 33, 11, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young ain't Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. That might have to do with the glory thing, frightening everybody that he came along with. But we see two men. That's pretty good company, isn't it? Moses, which I would consider one of the, the probably the, he is the single greatest figure in all the Old Testament. A man that truly walked with God, a man who also suffered, didn't he? The call of Moses was one of the greatest sufferings in all of sacred scripture. And his sufferings came by the hand of whom? By God's own people. His persecutions, his sufferings came from God's own people. Not an easy kind of Christianity. And yet he is called friend. It seems to be very clear that if Jesus calls you a friend, it does not mean your life is going to go perfectly. If God calls you a friend, he might be calling you to a life of suffering, not of ease. In fact, it appears that one's reading of the history of the church and biography, which we've gotten out of the habit of, it might be a good thing to take up to read the history of the church. It appears that those that God has called Many have suffered horribly for the cause of Christ. And then there's those that we don't know in biography. There's not a lot of comfort Christianity in the history of the church. And yet it is very clear that believers are called friends. These disciples were called friends. And we ourselves can call Jesus our brother and our friend. But that does not mean ease. And we know that right in the middle of the text, don't we? That verse, going back to that verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now what is Jesus speaking of right there at that moment? Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What is happening this very night? He is being betrayed. He will be handed over. And by the morning, he will be crucified. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, he will be dead and going to be buried. He is speaking of his own life. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The most glorious, beautiful example of love ever. But it wasn't merely for his friends, was it? Who did Jesus die for? Who did Jesus die for? 
We read it earlier, right? In Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still dirty, while we were still in the pig pen of our selfishness, Christ died for us. And if you read a little farther on, it's for his enemies. Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. What kind of friendship is he calling the church to and that we all so miserably fail at? What kind of friendship? A superficial friendship that you show up once in a while? or deep and abiding friendships that cost one maybe their life. That's the problem with so much of Christianity in the West. We have a very shallow understanding of friendship. I think none of, I think all of us can come away guilty on this score. The word of God is not there to say everything good about us. But it is the greatest example of love and Jesus clearly calls his men to come and follow. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Definitely not an easy call. But that's what he's calling. And today we celebrated the wondrous covenant of baptism. And there he is, Tucker Charles. And when we baptized him, the name, we baptize him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He's been set apart for what purpose? To make much of God. Because God owns him. And he's been called too to be set apart for not a life of ease, but a life of suffering. Moms and dads, how are you raising your children? Are you raising your children for comfort? Are you raising your children to get as much for the world as possible? Or are you raising your children for Christ? To know him and to live for him and to die for him and to die in him. Because everything is passing away, isn't it? The whole of our life is passing away. What will last? What will last? With our glorious education? Or maybe getting that scholarship so they can go to a college and be indoctrinated by professors who do not love Christ, nor you, nor them. What are we investing in as moms and dads in the discipleship of our children because they have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They belong to Christ. They need to know him. And they need to live for him. And they need to see it in us as moms and dads, willing to sacrifice our time, our talents, our being acknowledged by the world in order that they would know Christ. Jesus says in verse 16 that, well, you did not choose me. I chose you. Now, 
Granted, these men were called by Christ, and they did leave their fishing nets, and they left their tax-collecting booth, and they left some other places like the Zealot community and so forth, which was a pretty radical community, which was quite a big break for that guy. But they left. But who's the one that called? It was Christ that had chosen them. It is Christ who had called them. They had been appointed by him who made the universe. They had been appointed by the one who had loved them in so many beautiful and different ways. And also they had been appointed as friends in the one who would give his life for them. That's happening on this night. He's preparing them. He's preparing them. You're my appointed friends. I have chosen you to be ever fruitful friends. Isn't that why Jesus has chosen them to be ever fruitful friends? He wants them to bear fruit that lasts, doesn't he? Not this perishable fruit of the world, but the imperishable fruit of a godly life. The imperishable fruit of one who abides in Christ. That branch can never wither. It will always bear fruit. Fruit that's forever. That's what he sees in their ministry. As they go out and testify about them, they will be forever fruitful, these friends of his. Not even the gates of hell, Hades, the place of the dead, will be able to overcome them. Isn't that what Jesus promised to them at Caesarea Philippi? That they would overcome even death. And in this little piece, he begins the piece with love each other, and he ends this little section with love each other. Did you notice that? Love each other, love each other, love each other. What's he doing here? What's Jesus doing? Why is he saying this again and again and again and again? And in such a short phrase, he says again and again. What's he doing? Or what's he preparing them for? That might be the other question. What's the Lord Jesus Christ preparing them for? Because he says, love each other as I have loved you. How would Jesus love them? Well, he had put up with them, hadn't he? He's wonderfully patient and he's kind to a bunch of guys who are pretty self-absorbed and wanted to, you know, have one over the other. And there Jesus always was, gently rebuking and correcting them and sometimes not even doing that. But he was always with them, caring for them, loving them, and demonstrating to them what that love looked like. And then welcoming him to himself all different kinds of people that no one would have accepted but Jesus would bring in. Love each other like I have loved you, like I have loved Israel. You are to love each other. Remember that. But also remember how I loved you in the heat of the world's hatred. That's what he's preparing them for. 
love each other, love each other, love each other. Because an opposition is coming that will hate you and put you to death. So love each other. He's preparing his church with the, with the greatest power to overcome a world of hate, and that is to love each other. Love each other. He's preparing them for that. There is no doubt. There's no doubt at all. And of course, it's the cross, isn't it? It's the cross that they're also being called to remember in the heat of the world's hatred, hatred at Golgotha. The Romans and the Jews hated Jesus with a flaming passion. Well, isn't that what the cross was? An, ex an exhibition of? An ex it exhibited what? The hatred of the world, didn't it? Of both Rome and of the Jews, God's own people, and Gentiles together in the crucifixion, the murder of God's only begotten Son. And I believe Jesus is saying, remember that. Remember that when the world hates you. It hated me first. The cross is a declaration of the world's hatred of Jesus, the only righteous person that ever lived, and God himself. And then Jesus talks about persecution. Now, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But what did Jesus say about persecution? Had he ever warned them before this moment that they would be persecuted? Had he ever warned them in his ministry that they would be persecuted? Well, you'd have to go to the Sermon on the Mount, the glorious Sermon on the Mount to the Beatitudes, and you would find blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. Actually, Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's exactly what they did to Jesus, didn't they? They lied about him, they insulted him, they persecuted him. And if they do that to you because of me, rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's not only talking about the persecution from the outside world. He's talking about the persecution from the church of the Old Testament. And what we know in the history of the church is much hatred has come against the gospel. Not from the world outside, but the world inside the church. The Reformation is a wondrous example of that. A restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what were they met with? Those that wanted to restore the word of God to the center of corporate worship, to the center of the church. They were met with a sword and with strangulation and with the burning of their bodies on public display. Guy Debray, the writer of the Belgian Confession that you will find in your, your Psalter hymnals, himself was on the run for about six years, at least six years, going by the name of Augustine and Jerome because he wouldn't even say his name publicly. That's how dangerous it was. Preaching in the fields and at night in little conventicles, little small groups, until they found him and caught him. And they murdered him. 
But I challenge you now, read Guy Debray's letters, find it on the internet, and you will find a man who was persecuted for the cause of Christ who lived at the very end a blessed, glorious life. Because he was asking still for forgiveness for his persecutors and his murderers. He was proclaiming Christ to his wife and to his mother and to everyone in the cell. Even though the world hated him, what happens when the world hates in the darkness of hate? Love does what? It shines more brightly, doesn't it? It beams through, it cuts through the darkness. We come from a tradition that that, and it was inside of the church. But the wondrous stories of the history of the church of those that have died for the cause of Christ, well, they shine forth the love of God, don't they? They pierce through the darkness. So what is the fundamental reason for the, this hatred? What is the fundamental reason for this hatred in verse 21 that Jesus speaks of? They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. Ignorance. Ignorance of the truth. Or should we say they don't, know, they don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ who leads to the Father. But that seems to be the fundamental reason. Because of the name of Christ. And they do not know the one who sent me. And Jesus is very clear as he continues to teach that they don't know the Father. That if they hate me, they hate the Father. And so the Jews that had opposed Jesus in his generation did that because of ignorance. But yet they will be without excuse. Do you see that in, in the text? If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. They will be held accountable. And so will everyone held accountable who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ who hears about Christ and him crucified and resurrected, who hears about his amazing grace and wondrous love. Because if you reject Jesus, you reject God. That's what Christianity says clearly. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. You reject the one who gives life. And Jesus is saying, for that generation, and for generations that have come since, they are without excuse, whether you're inside the church or outside the church. To reject Jesus is reject God. To reject God is to reject life and life forevermore. See, that's a weighty message that the world does not want to hear, do they? The world doesn't want to hear that message, do they? They want to hear a message that conforms to their will and to their pattern, a God like them who serves on their terms. But we do not see that in sacred scripture. No, no man is without excuse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Is that you? Is that you this morning? Because I do not assume at all 
in the sacred halls of the church that all have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. No. So with that weight, Jesus gets done with that in in verse 25. There must have been a, a heaviness in that room. And then Jesus says this in verse 26. Ah, when the counselor comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the very beginning. So with this reality of the heaviness, he says, oh, my friends, my chosen, you're my witnesses. It's time to go out. It's time to tell the world so that no one will be without excuse and that they too would come to know me and be my friends and and my chosen and my witnesses. So, O church of God, arise, you who have the spirit of the living God within you. Arise. Do not be silent. Speak. Do not be a coward in the heat of this moment because the world wants you to shut your mouth wants you to be silent. That's what the universities want. That's what even the corporations want. They don't want us to be witnesses. They want to make certain that we are silent, but we cannot be silent, for this is glorious news. It's the only news that brings life. That is what the Christian church proclaims. So are you willing to be hated? Are you willing to be hated? by the world in following Jesus. Because it's easy to conform, isn't it, to, to the culture. It's easy to live a comfort Christianity, but that's a Christless Christianity. It's Christless. There's no Jesus in it. There's only wishful thinking and a dark eternal end. Our comfort, brothers and sisters, is in Christ and in him alone. It's in his death. It's in his life. It's in his resurrection. It's in who he is. And he has the power to redeem us of our sins and raise us even when we have died to eternal life. Jesus said these words, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word, even if it's heavy heavy on our hearts, heavy on our minds. And yet the heaviness is there, again, to arrest our affections to what is most true and most glorious and most worth speaking and living. Oh, help our cowardly, lion hearts to be able to speak your word with gentleness and respect, kindness, yes, wisdom, of course, but to speak it in the power of the Spirit, O help us, Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.